I want to welcome you to this presentation on the coronavirus and a Christian response to the pandemic. If you're listening on a podcast version, there will obviously be no slides. And if you wish to see the video slash audio presentation, which does have the slides, you can visit the church's website. The image on our screen has unfortunately become iconic. We don't really need the, the label, the banner across there to tell us that this is the coronavirus. It is mind-boggling that something we cannot see has become so iconic and so, well, world-changing. Seismologists tell us that since the sheltering in place has happened, that the earth is not even shaking as much as usual because of the lack of traffic, which is really just kind of mind-boggling. I do want to point out that this is a Christian response to the pandemic. Two parts of that really require a little clarification. It's Christian. It's not a scientific response. It's not a political response. It's not an economic or fiscal response. It's a biblical theological response. And also the indefinite Article A. I don't claim to speak for all of Christianity here. As you probably know, Christianity has many different traditions, denominations, perspectives, and this is simply one Christian response to the current pandemic. In order to get at that, I want to just kind of back up a little bit. I remember that Tuesday, 9-11, and if you're old enough, you remember probably where you were. The skies in Kansas City looked very much like they did in Manhattan that day, a beautiful blue day. David May and I were teaching a class called Preaching Matthew. We were just preparing to go into the classroom, and out of that class came this book, Preaching Matthew, when he heard the news and came to tell me. Of course, we decided that we would not meet as a class. We simply met with them for a few moments kind of stumbled our way into a time of silence and scripture and let them go. A week later, or that following Sunday, and in the Sundays to come, preachers, churches all over the country tried to make sense of it. I preached and was a guest preacher at a church, and I used the Beatitudes, which come out of Matthew. I used the image of how there is a mound of rubble in Manhattan, but in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes up another mountain, and there he speaks these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those seemed like really good words to hear from Jesus at a time of crisis. A few years later, I was teaching a preaching class, an intro preaching class, and two things happened, and I don't know that many people remember how they happened only two days apart. The Boston Marathon bombing on April 15, 2013, and then the explosion in the little town of West in Texas two days later. The class was supposed to talk that day about how does one engage what is going on in the world, and so this seemed like the perfect opportunity. We talked about our own reaction to both of the news events, the difference of 
whether something happens on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or even a Friday and how does one try to make sense of it and say something meaningful. We also talked about how theology can so often be local. We speculated that if you were attending a church in Boston that following Sunday, one could imagine that this was very much the focus. Whereas in Texas, in that small town, it probably was more about their explosion than the Boston one. And we wondered, does it matter where one is? Is that the only determining factor? When we think about the coronavirus now, my very non-scientific online survey, when you, when you just kind of search for this, two things seem to pop up with regard to Christians and churches and the coronavirus. All kinds of stories about debating shelter in place. Churches choosing to go along with that, churches refusing to go along with that. Some of them articulating that very well and others maybe not so well. I'm afraid that in that first case, we can so easily start to look to the public like we are flat earthers, that we don't believe in science or some such thing. The other response has been incredible stories about resourceful online worship, and not just in Christianity, by the way. Um, But these two things have tended to be what is being said and being written about from a Christian perspective or about Christians and the virus. It seems to me that a Christian response to this pandemic has to acknowledge that the so-called new normal is anything but normal. The New York Times featured a photographic essay of Good Friday images from around the world. This is a picture of St. Peter's Square with the Pope presiding on Good Friday. It's very eerie. I don't have to tell you that. But it just shows how different things are at a time like this. So what is the Christian response? Well, I'm thinking about a different set of responses. Three questions in particular. How has the church responded to plagues through the ages? What does the Bible say about this kind of suffering? And what then shall we say as followers of Christ? So let's work through those. Now, I put in parentheses the word very because this admittedly is a very brief history of Christians and plagues. There were plagues earlier, there were plagues later than the ones we'll look at, but these are are good examples of what Christians have done and how they've responded. The first one is the plague of Cyprian, which was from the third century. It really came to have a lot of uh, press coverage, so to speak, because of the bishop who preached on the plague, and therefore there's more written about it. They speculate that it was likely an Ebola outbreak. It happened in Carthage, which would be in modern-day Tunisia, northern Africa. And Bishop Cyprian did preach on it. And he, for the most part, encouraged Christians to care for the dying. And they did. And, of course, the people who were not Christian, they noticed this. This was an incredible self-giving act. They say that those communities where the Christians went in and cared for others suffered half the deaths of other villages, which is a pretty amazing thing. 
And the world, of course, took notice. Christianity actually got good press and spread as a result. That makes me think about the difference between that and resisting shelter in place now, which is not great press. The second one is the Black Plague, or the Black Death. It was in the 14th century. It was named for these black rats and the fleas that fed off of them. It devastated Europe and North Africa. Some estimates say 25 to 40 million people died. I've even seen estimates as high as 100 million. It's really hard to know. But the church responses varied. The number one response, and this has always been the case, is that God must be judging us. We'll see in a minute where that comes from. But the other response, and it's also a typical one, is a scapegoating response. Blaming, in this case, the Jews. Unfortunately, in our day, something similar has happened when some people have speculated and called this the China virus. But that's a really unfortunate thing, and there's all kinds of stories now about anti-Asian, specifically Chinese, um, hostility and, and, and treating them poorly. And so this is not a new kind of thing, this scapegoating. The third one is the second bubonic plague in the 16th century. Spread throughout Europe, and typically the strategy for villagers was to move during outbreaks. It just made sense to them. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a tract, Whether Christians Should Flee the Plague. You can go online and read the whole thing. It's fascinating. It's convoluted. It's got its arguments, its pros and cons, and it's very thorough, as Luther was on most things. And you won't agree with everything he says. I certainly don't. But he did argue for self-sacrifice, even death, on the part of Christians. Luther, of course, was big into the Bible, and if you read that article, you'll see that he quotes a lot of Scripture. So it leads me to say this. Both Testaments are written in response to plagues of a sort. Here's what I mean. The Old Testament is formed and written in response to the Babylonian exile. This is when the Babylonian army attacked Jerusalem, the southern tribes, destroyed the temple, carted off elites into exile into another country. And this crisis precipitated the writing so that even stories that you find in Genesis, even though they're set within early, early history, they are written in response to the Babylonian exile. And something similar happens with the New Testament. It's formed in response to Roman occupation. Just as the Babylonians attack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, the Romans end up doing the same thing in the first century. And this precipitates the writing of letters by Paul, the Gospels. So the Bible is not uh, unfamiliar with evil, and it's a little bit of a mislead to say plagues, but you get the idea. Theologians, however, make a distinction. They use the terms evil and suffering, but not as synonyms. Evil, they tend to designate as that which is caused by humans, as with 9-11. Suffering, on the other hand, would be natural causes, as is the case with the current COVID-19 virus. 
So, when you turn to the Bible and you think about plagues, well, one of the first places you would have to go is the Passover story. Israel is captive in Egypt, and their deliverance is described as the climax of ten plagues that God causes. But scholars make an important distinction here as well. The Hebrew word Yahweh, which gets translated Lord, is used in the stories of violence. Elohim, the word for God, is used in other places. And for the most part, all of the stories of violence are associated with Yahweh. The stories where God is not violent use Elohim. The only exception is the flood story. Early in the Bible, chapter 6 to be example, God sends this flood upon the earth, Noah and the ark. And then God repents of that at the end. It starts by saying God repented or was sorry for having made humans. And then having flooded the earth, God says that God is sorry for having flooded the earth and that will never happen again. So when one looks in the Bible and sees God associated with violence, one has to make a distinction. And we'll see why in a minute because what we often fail to note is that the writers of the Bible have their theologies as well. So I want to look at just a few common refrains that you will hear at a time like this and at other times like it. First is that God is punishing us. We saw that one in the different plagues. And if you think, well, now where did they get that from? Well, they got it from the Bible. One part of the Bible. It's called Deuteronomistic Theology. It gets its name from Deuteronomy, but it's larger than the book of Deuteronomy. It's there prominently in Deuteronomy, but it's also in the Minor Prophets. And it's the notion that God punishes evil and rewards good. So when evil happens, people say, well, then God must be punishing. And if someone's prospering, they say, well, then they must be doing well. They must not be disobeying God. And that theology is prominent in the Old Testament. But it's only one theology within the Old Testament. Job's story, for example, will say otherwise. In fact, the other characters in Job's story, his so-called friends, they espouse Deuteronomistic theology. You must have done wrong. Repent. But Job's story shows that even the innocent can suffer. Another refrain that one hears is that God will protect us. It's hard to believe, but some churches, pastors, have said, we're going to continue to meet. We will violate the shelter-in-place and the social distancing laws because God will not allow Christians to contract the virus. Not if they're faithful. Not if they have faith. And the Gospel of Mark seems to promise such a thing. Here's the verses from the end, Mark 16. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. But this so-called longer ending of Mark was tacked on. If you look in the Gospel of Mark, it really ends at verse 8. And we're at verses 17 and 18. This so-called longer ending was written for a variety of reasons, a kind of unease with the way Mark leaves things hanging. 
But this notion of picking up snakes and drinking poison and not being harmed, this really isn't a very sound theology. The other one is that God is testing us. First Peter, for instance, speaks of persecution, which was undergoing at the time, as God's testing. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. But scholars again note the kind of damage done by such theology, a kind of God is testing you theology. For instance, this has been used over the years to justify women staying in relationships where there is domestic abuse. They say, just rejoice in this. God is testing you. And there are some horrible stories coming out even now about domestic abuse on the rise, or at least they speculate, because of people that are sheltering in place and just too much contact. When I think about these three responses in particular, I recall being at a symposium at Calvin where Jeremy Begbie, a British scholar, said, I find that approach deeply problematic. And then he added in his British accent, deeply problematic is British for wrong. I think those responses are deeply problematic. They need to be challenged. As I've said before, I think one of the biggest failings of Christian education in the churches is recognizing the different and even competing theologies in its pages. You have the image of an open Bible there, 66 different documents. It would be more accurate to speak of the Bibles or the documents within the Bible. It's a library. They do not all have the same views. And that's in the Bible that we have this diversity of viewpoint. So what then shall we say? Karl Barth, who is without question the most influential theologian of the 20th century, famously claimed that the church's teachings are most faithful when ignoring the cultural situation. In this little book, The Word in This World, he, he has two sermons. His earlier sermon preached at the beginning of his ministry is on the sinking of the Titanic, and the sermon is almost exclusively about the incident. But late in his life, he preached a sermon, and this was during the rise of Hitler and the Nazis, and he entirely ignored the situation. Now, the reason that Barth could say this is that he thought that the agenda of humans is too small. If we made the church's teachings and preachings be about everything that happens to us, we could lose sight of God. I get that, but to quote Begbie, this seems deeply problematic to me. It's one thing to let our agenda become the focus, but it seems like a mistake in the opposite direction to ignore our context and what is going on in the world. That's where I find David Schlafer's little book, What Makes This Day Different, helpful. He offers a distinction. The difference between preaching on, we could say teaching on, and preaching through. The first approach would address the context as the focus. 
the sermons, the teachings, everything would be on, in this case, the coronavirus. The second focuses on the gospel, but in the context of the crisis. And different churches use different approaches. Right now, there are churches who have shifted gears, and every single study and sermon is about the, the virus. Our approach has been to respond to it directly at first, but then to shift, to focus more on the gospel, but not ignoring the context of the crisis. And worship can do this in many ways, including the prayers. I think also that a scientific worldview, which is what we have that they didn't have in Luther's day and in Cyprian's day, a scientific worldview demands an intellectual response. Doctors have become our high priests, and I would say rightly so. People are not turning to the, the, the preachers, to the clergy, in a time of scientific crisis the way they would have in earlier times. Because we live in an enlightened world, doctors are who we turn to for facts. <laughs> There's a great story about how prior to the Reformation, people were going forward to receive communion, and the priest would place the wafer in their hand or in their mouth, and as soon as they left the altar, they would take it out, or they would put it in their pocket and take it home to give to their cows in hopes that it might produce more milk, or they would even plant them in the ground and hope that their crops would increase. We don't have that kind of worldview. That's not who we are, and so we turn to science, and that is not a conflict with our faith. One of the questions that has surfaced of late, and I've been asked it quite a bit, is do you think more people will turn to church and God? It's very, very hard to say. Here's some thoughts. After 9-11, it's true that church attendance increased, but only about 4% and only for about two months. That's not a great return. There is some speculation right now and some data that younger persons are tuning in now more than ever. Now the question of course is, will they tune in when the tuning in is no longer online but in person? Although some churches obviously have both. What I would say is this, revival, the notion of a spiritual awakening, has always been the work of God. When I was in seminary and we were studying the Great Awakenings, the First and Second Great Awakenings, our professor stressed over and over again that you, you really can't make such a thing happen. So while we might hope for a revival out of this, that people would turn to God, maybe re-engage their spiritual life, there's really no way to know. I do think that post-Christendom is likely the new normal. That needs a little bit of unpacking. Christendom is sometimes the term given to Christianity after Constantine was made emperor of Rome in the 4th century. He converted to Christianity and eventually um, the, made it legal for persons in the empire to be Christian. And by the end of the century, another emperor made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And some people have said that this was both good news because the church was no longer persecuted, but bad news because it all got mixed together, church and state, everyone was Christian, and that we live now in what's called post-Christendom, 
that people no longer automatically see themselves as part of a church or Christianity. And reality says that's probably the new normal. But again, revival is always the work of God, so no one knows. I think about two things that I hear so often these days. The news reports grim facts and death tolls, and that's their job. Entertainers and athletes are recording and making albums and all kinds of things to assure victory. We'll get through this. We can do this. Christianity lives between the times. That's the phrase that's used. We really live between these two points, or maybe better said, standing on both of these points. It's called inaugurated eschatology. That's just the really fancy way of saying uh, between the times. Eschatology means the end, and inaugurated, as in inaugural ball, means the beginning. So we live between the beginning and the end. In other words, when Jesus came to the earth, when, when he lived in first century Israel, he said, the kingdom of God is among you. Ah, that would be good news. We're going to get through this. But then he said, when he taught us how to pray, that we pray for God's kingdom to come. Well, if it's among us, then why are we praying for it to come? Because it's not yet fully realized. That's what it means to live between the times. Good news, we're going to get through this, is true. And bad news, people are dying, is true. Christians embrace both of these things. It is the reality. But there is hope, and there is good news, at a time like this. God is with us, even in suffering. I don't want to say especially in suffering, because I think that privileges it and can lead to some faulty thinking. I think what is true is that especially in times of suffering, we are more attuned to the presence of God. The Psalms of Lament are directed to God. I think that's an important distinction. In Good Friday, I preached, and Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew as well, he quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in other places in the Psalms, Oh Lord, how long will you... But you hear it? In both, there is a cry of lament, but they are directed to God. It is okay to cry out to God. That questioning is faithful. And though we can't be with people right now, we can be for them. We can support caregivers, for example. Think about that passage in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, No greater love than laying down one's life. And here we have great examples. People are making masks in our church, people are donating funds, they're doing what they can to support others. This is something we can do even if we can't be with people. We can also care for the poor. Lots of studies showing right now that it is the poor who suffer the most. African American communities, other folks who are living on the margins, on the edge, when things like this happen, they are most affected. I remember James Forbes, who was the longtime pastor at Riverside in New York. He made an interesting comment about 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. Of course, the church and America said lots to say about 9-11, but not so much about Katrina just a few years later. 
Forbes said that when when the church focuses more on military victory as opposed to caring for the poor, we miss the mark. And then he 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 kind of brought up that wonderful image, well, a horrific image in a way, of the the uh, radar in the Gulf of Mexico as Katrina was approaching. It it seemed to almost fill the entire Gulf of Mexico. And when he looked at that, he said, that is a CAT scan of America's soul, and we have been found wanting. At a time like this, we are encouraged, as always, to care for the poor. And then one other thing. Our faith is incarnational. The word means flesh, like when you order enchiladas con carne, with meat. Our our faith is incarnational. Jesus took on our flesh, and we are a people who long for human touch. And the good news is, we will be together again. The last little piece of good news is a benediction that I sometimes use at the church. And so, I invite you to receive it. By the grace of God, you were brought forth into this world, and by the grace of God, you are being kept. Go forth in that grace, and with God's peace. Amen.